I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Hamas's savage slaughter of Israeli civilians did not happen in a vacuum, and Israel's war with Hamas has enormous regional and global implications. Iran's terror proxies in Lebanon and Syria, even in Yemen, have been testing Israel with artillery, missiles, attempted incursions, and Hezbollah, with an estimated arsenal of over 100,000 rockets, is poised to attack from the north. Two American carrier strike groups are deployed to the Mediterranean to deter the conflict from further expanding. Here with me today to talk about Israel's constantly evolving military situation is Yaakov Katz, originally from Chicago. Yaakov was the Jerusalem Post's military correspondent for almost a decade before taking the helm as editor-in-chief for seven years. The author of three books about Israel's shadow war with Iran, its military technology, and its strike on Syria's nuclear reactor, Yaakov is uniquely qualified to help us understand how Israel ended up in this war, what might happen next, and why it concerns all of us. Yaakov, thank you for joining me, and welcome to In These Times. Rabbi Hirsch, it's always an honor to be with you as well. First of all, let me ask you before anything else, where are you in Israel now, and personally, what are your emotions? I'm in my home in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. The last two and a half weeks are a blur. Night meshes into day, day into night, and you just live with a constant feeling of anxiety, of worry for your own loved ones. I have a daughter who's down south on those front lines as we speak. I have a, a brother who's up on the front lines with Lebanon, nephews all over the borders. But even without that, like I look at my three other children who are home with me, and I see how each one of them is dealing with this very differently and very scared. I think there is a national sense of great trepidation for what was and what is still yet to come in this conflict that we are stuck in here. When you say fear, do you mean fear of new fronts opening up or some other fear? You know, I think this war in comparison to others, first of all, we have to remember started off very differently. It, it might be an exaggeration to say this, but we kind of lost before we even began. When you had so many people murdered and massacred in their homes on that dark Saturday of October 7th, the holiday of Simchat Torah here in Israel. And only a couple days later did the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, finally get its feet stable on the ground to be able to start to push back those terrorists, say the area has been cleared out. Now we can start to prepare for a counteroffensive, which is as we speak, has yet to come. That great loss right at the beginning shook the country and created such trauma, I think, in a way that people around the world still don't understand. That's number one. The second fear, though, and, and I think you know, it's important that people realize this. There's a saying in Hebrew, en baitche, en right? There's no home where there is not somebody who is dead. Thank God I don't have anyone dead in my house, but the way I look at it today is that there's no home where you don't know someone firsthand, personal, who has been killed in this, who has been taken hostage in this, who has been wounded in this. Rabbi, you know Israel very well. When you have 12, 1,300 people killed, we're a tiny country. Everybody knows everybody. When you have 212 hostages being held by Hamas, everybody knows somebody. If they don't know somebody held hostage, they know somebody who knows somebody held hostage. 
it's a very close-knit family, this country. And then there's the other dimension, what I spoke about before about my family serving. That's every family here, pretty much, hmm. right? Unless you're an Arab or certain ultra-Orthodox. So every family has loved ones who are either in their mandatory service on the front lines, in reserves on the front lines, or they themselves are on the front lines. I wonder if you can take us back to the days and weeks before October 7th. Was there something about the environment in the country or the government and the way it functioned or Israeli society that exacerbated this unpreparedness and this surprise? What caused this huge, I think it might be the worst tragedy and the worst surprise in the whole history of the state of Israel? What caused that? Israelis were so confident that they had security under control. I think had you asked Israelis before October 7th, if something like this, at this scale, at this scope and magnitude, these numbers could happen, they would have said, get out of here. No way. Yeah, they could maybe sneak in a few of them. Maybe they could carry out some attack, but not like this. But it happened. Something went fundamentally wrong. I think there are multiple layers to the failures that led to what happened on October 7th. There is the intelligence that we didn't have. How did we not know? There were the defensive measures that were around Gaza that were supposed to stop this. There were the tactical failures of what took the IDF so long to deploy. I want to talk about two more fundamental and deeper flaws. The first is, when you talked about, Rabbi, what was going on here before, Israel was embroiled in the greatest civil strife or rift and division within our society, maybe in Israeli history. You know, people would say it was like the disengagement in 2005 or like the fights in the 1950s between Ben-Gurion and Begin about whether to take compensation from the German government or not after the Holocaust. But this, this was something else. A quarter of a million people every week going out to the streets and Netanyahu ignoring it, his government ignoring it, not only ignoring it, but stoking the flames even more and, and, and distracting the entire country. Reservists saying we won't serve, pilots saying we won't serve, the army saying, Mr. Prime Minister, this is going to undermine our capabilities. And I don't like to quote myself, but I wrote a piece just before Yom Kippur saying we're distracted. Our enemies sense our weakness. They could take advantage of it. Never did I think that this is what would happen. But if I was Israel's enemy watching Israel, of course, this is the time to attack. Of course, you attack when your enemy is weak. And we were weak inside internally. We, we set them up for this. We gave it to them on a silver platter. All Israeli governments are so focused on security, so intently, all the time. How do you explain that everybody, and in particular the people who were in charge of the government and responsible for securing uh, the country, how do you explain that they took their eye off the ball? Was it arrogance? Was it blindness? Was it just political selfishness? How do you explain it? I think it's everything you just said, Rabbi Hirsch. It's the arrogance that we thought that we're stronger, we're better. We bought into this misconception, this myth that we can contain Gaza, we can contain Hamas, we can buy them off with economic incentives. We can deter them. We can have rounds every couple of years. They'll hit us, we'll hit them, but then they'll go back to being the way they were. That blew up in our faces. We had our eye off the ball and a distraction with what was happening with the judicial overhaul that was ripping the country apart. But we also have a government that is led by a person who is on trial for fraud, bribery, and breach of trust, whose whole purpose today is to stay in power and to avoid 
those charges somehow. That takes precedence to everything, to our national security, to our economy, to everything. How many people told him, Bibi, stop the reform, stop the overhaul. It's ruining the country. But he plowed ahead. So is it one thing that I could say, this is what caused it? I think it was everything all put together. And we will have to have a day of reckoning when this is over as a country, because now we have to fight. But when this is over, we will have to look internally and say, how did this happen to ourselves? How did we, the state of Israel, because let's also remember, that I th- to me, there's something fundamental there. I 30 years ago decided to move my life to this country. But for people who look at Israel and say, Israel was the answer to the Holocaust. It was the answer that said, what happened then can never happen again. But when you look at October 7th, and I, I don't compare but the single day that the most Jews have been murdered since the Holocaust happens inside the state of Israel, there's something flawed with what's happening here in the state of Israel today that we have to fix. So could you take us back to the actual day, October 7th, Shabbat and Simchat Torah? What were your initial reactions? When did you first begin to hear the news and how did you respond? So we were home. We had eaten dinner by my in-laws in the Rova HaYehudi in the Jewish quarter of the old city. In Jerusalem, we had danced there with the Torah that night, and we had walked back. We got home late, so we were planning to go to services a little later than usual. And at about 8.15, I wake up from an air siren going off. And I wake up my wife, Chaya, and we immediately get all the kids, and we run down to the bomb shelter. I grab my phone, because I don't know what's going on, and I'm looking as I'm walk, running down to the bomb shelter, and I see rockets here, rockets there, infiltrations. I'm like, what, what is going on? Obviously, there were a couple more of those sirens throughout the day. We immediately connected and understood what's going on. My daughter, who was home with us, she'd be coming an IDF officer, was called back to her base. And it was clear that this was something of a whole other scale, a whole other scale. So I've covered conflict in this country as a journalist since about beginning of the 2000s, so 20 years now. I've covered the war in Lebanon, countless operations in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. This is a whole other level. Did you know that immediately or it took several hours? When I saw right away that so many people had crossed into Israel and were inside our towns and our communities, it was clear to me this was something else. This was something else. Something was fundamentally gone wrong and wasn't working. And look, President Biden himself said this. This isn't 9-11 for Israel. This is 15 9-11s for Israel when you think of the numbers and per capita in our population. Could you help us understand the level of barbarity and savagery that distinguishes what happened on October 7th from other acts of violence that we in the West observe in conflicts around the world? So suicide bombings, we got used to. Unfortunately, we never should have gotten used to them. But we got used to them. That was the beginning of the 2000s, the late 90s. I was then a student at the time. Buses would blow up and coffee shops would be attacked. We said that's the level of atrocity they can reach, right? To strap a bomb belt on a kid or on a woman or on a man and to say, tell them to blow up. But here, what we saw, that people can just murder children, cut off limbs, decapitate them in front of their parents, kill parents in front of their kids, burn people alive, rape women the way they did kill pregnant women the way they did, with such callousness, with total disregard. You know, the immediate reaction is to say they're animals. But they're not animals. They're people, 
right? They're people behaving like animals, but something is sick here and disturbing at a level that is so hard to wrap your head around. I, I watch these videos. I speak to the people who were there and I, I can't understand this, this level of brutality and how it happened here. You know, we would see pictures and videos of ISIS putting someone in a cage, lighting them on fire. That was like in Syria or Iraq. That can't happen in Israel, but here it did. It happened in our country, in our homes. It creates a sense of vulnerability that, that runs so deep, I think, throughout every single Israeli today that lives now with this fear. What do you think are the long-term ramifications of that kind of personal and national trauma? Uh, look, on the one hand, part of me wants to jump straight into politics, right? I think politically this will make great changes, right? When Israelis today hear the president of America or somebody else talk about the two-state solution, they look at them and they say, where are you coming from? We literally feel, and I feel this too, and I've long been a proponent of two states and Palestinian self-determination. But I look at that today and I say to myself, we're literally in a fight for survival. It's not just because of Hamas. It's because of everyone else that's looking at us right now and testing us right now. So politically, that will change the Israeli electorate, which was anyhow turning right. They will turn more right, I think. But even deeper inside, what will happen to our society? But, you know, One of the big laws that was supposed to be brought up right now as the Knesset returns was what's known as Chok HaGius, the IDF draft law. That was going to give the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, this blanket exemption from service. That won't fly anymore after this. This country will be different. There have to be changes here. There will have to be changes in the way we talk to one another, in the way we interact with one another. But also, I think we have to look deeper inside ourselves and say, what happened? How did, like the question you asked me, how did we get here? What went wrong with the general ethos of this country? And we'll have to find that again. We're recording this on October 23rd, and so the military situation will be changing every hour. But as of now, what's happening on the battlefront, first of all in Gaza and then up north on the Lebanese border? And I think we're 16 days into this. We would have expected by now that the ground incursion would have occurred. As of now, October 23rd, it hasn't happened. So what's going on militarily? And then why hasn't the ground incursion begun yet? So look, militarily, what's happening right now is the IDF has still prepared its troops. They're along the border with Gaza, preparing for this potential ground incursion. They're along the border with Lebanon. They're to defend mostly at the moment, but could be activated for a ground offensive into Lebanon, depending on what happens there. I think there's a few reasons why the ground incursion hasn't happened. Number one is what we have to remember in those initial days. They had invaded our country, our homes. We had to push them back. We had to resecure the border. Then what you have to do is you have to attack targets from the air, and you want to try to take out as much as you can without putting soldiers' lives at risk. But now, if the ultimate goal is to topple Hamas, destroy Hamas, it depends who you ask. Everybody uses a different word, but at least definitely significantly weaken and degrade Hamas's capabilities, you have to put boots on the ground because you have to pull people out. If they're in the tunnels, if they're hiding somewhere from the air, they won't come out. But when you're there on the ground, they're going to come out to try to meet you. And that gives you the soldiers, the units, the ability to try to take them out and engage them on the ground. It's a waiting period. There's a lot of speculation why Israel has yet to go in, requests from America to wait because maybe there could be more progress with hostages. A fear maybe by Netanyahu and some of his people that 
maybe it's not worth going in on the ground, right? We know that Netanyahu has been hesitant in the past to send troops on the ground into Gaza. But I think that one of the other big issues is what's happening up north. Lebanon, we have to remember, there are daily skirmishes along that border. They are daily testing the IDF and daily trying to infiltrate and attack us with rockets, with mortars, and with bombs, and with terror cells that try to come in. Over 30 Hezbollah fighters, as we speak, have already been killed. Israeli soldiers have been killed. Now, let's remember that Hamas is, I don't want to say peanuts compared to Hezbollah, but really incomparable. Not in the number of rockets that Hezbollah has, over 100,000 with the ability to strike anywhere inside Israel, many of them with precision-guided capabilities. More fighters, better trained, better ammunition, better missiles, anti-tank weapons, better surface-to-air systems, a war of a different scale. Hezbollah is not just another terrorist group. It's a military, basically. It would be a a military-to-military war. So Israel has to figure out what does it do here, because if Israel goes into Gaza, that would be the trigger for Hezbollah to escalate what it's been doing. But even without that, maybe the question that we're asking ourselves is right now, should we actually be engaging actively with Hezbollah? Is it now maybe the time and the opportunity to change the paradigm here forever, Rabbi Hirsch? to change everything that's been going on, to no longer live with a sword up against our neck like we've been living until now and telling ourselves stories that, yes, we can contain them and deter them. That's not working. So I think that there's a lot of these considerations that are at play, and we can hope that they're going to be making the right decisions. The kind of incursion, mass invasion of the enemy that we saw in Gaza What Israelis actually feared is that that would happen in the north, not in the south. Right. And are Israelis now concluding that as that concept was not viable in the south, it's no longer viable in the north? It doesn't make sense that Israel will finish whatever it does in Gaza and still live with this perpetual fear from the north. It doesn't make sense. A country can't live like this. Personally, I'm perfectly aware of of what they have and the price we will pay and how it will mean great destruction to a lot of our infrastructure in Israel and losses to our soldiers and to civilians. But do we not once and for all deserve the right to live freely without these threats? I don't know. I'm torn. I don't envy the people who have to make these decisions. But, but when you think about the legitimacy that Israel has today to act in self-defense, for years, we've been trying to tell the world what Hamas is and what they are and who they are and what they're after. And everyone would say, no, if you just let more workers in, you just give them more money and you just pull out a little more and release prisoners and all that stuff, maybe they'll be better. But now everyone sees what's really happening here. Maybe this is the opportunity we need to press reset on the Middle East and to change things so Israel will be safe and secure for generations to come, not just a couple of years to come. Mm. Do you have confidence in the IDF and its ability to do what the government has declared is its policy? And do you think Israelis have confidence now in the IDF, given what happened on October 7th? There is great confidence in the IDF, in the soldiers, as well as in the commanders. I just saw a poll done by JPPI, the Jewish People Policy Institute, that shows a great level of trust in the IDF, in their capabilities, and in their people. On the government side, it's the complete opposite. Great distrust today with Netanyahu and with the Israeli government. So you believe that if and when the government gives the order uh, to 
finish off Hamas in, in the South, that can largely be accomplished by the IDF. I have no doubt. Let's remember, Israel is a powerful military. It's well-trained, well-equipped, and well-armed. They will know how to deal with these threats. Does that mean we will not have losses? Unfortunately, we will have losses. But Hamas is not an existential threat. We can deal with Hamas. And if we need to take over all of Gaza, we can take over all of Gaza. The, the IDF can manage with that mission. And the IDF, by the way, can manage with Hezbollah too. We can deal with all these people and all these threats. Let me give you a feeling of what it's like living here in Jerusalem for a moment. You walk down the street right near my house, Derek Beit Lechem, popular street here in the Baca neighborhood. And coffee shops, people are sitting there. Now you say to yourself, how are people sitting in a coffee shop? Well, there's a war going on. But somehow Israelis have mastered the technique. On the one hand, knowing there's a war, but they try to keep living their lives. So I think people understand we suffered a painful blow, an unprecedented blow. Our existence is not yet on the line. What do you think is going to happen in the aftermath? Look, it really depends on whether there's a war with Hezbollah or not. If the war stays contained to Hamas and Gaza, I think that we will look in half a year from now and even less than that and see that Hamas has been severely weakened and many of its people killed and captured, its infrastructure and weapons destroyed. Hopefully, we will also see a new governing entity in the Gaza Strip. Hopefully. It's not something we can necessarily control. I think the last thing that Israel needs to do is drive in some Palestinian leader on an Israeli tank and place them as a puppet on the so-called Gaza throne. That would be a terrible tragedy and mistake. But somehow, if organically, a new leadership can be created, and we'll need help for that from the Saudis and the Egyptians and the Americans, maybe that can make a big difference. That would be if it's in Gaza. If it's in Lebanon, Israel is not going to stay in Lebanon, and Israel is not going to try to change the leadership of Lebanon. What Israel will want to do is it will want to decimate Hezbollah. To do that, unfortunately, it will require destroying a lot of Lebanon because of where, how they store all their rockets and weapons and civilian infrastructure. It will mean great devastation to Lebanon. Lebanon will not look the same. Gaza already does not look the same. But then the question is, what happens the day after? Because we've been in this movie before. We go to a war, we pull out, there's a UN Security Council resolution, there's some ceasefire, whatever it is, and then they rearm. And then five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, whatever it is, there's a new war. And now they have more weapons. I think what Israel will be required to do this time is constant preemptive strikes. And I hate to sound like a crazy militant and some nutty neocon, but we cannot allow them to rearm and again threaten us in the same way. Now, if you think about it for a moment, Israel does not really hold by a policy of preemptive action. It watched Hezbollah over the last 17 years since the 2006 war gain weapons, and it never struck. It watched Hamas gain weapons. It would see them train, and it never took preemptive action. I think now we're going to have to make a complete 180 on that policy and start to use preemptive strikes in action to prevent them from rearming, because otherwise, what do we achieve here? And the sad part of that is it means constant friction, constant tension, constant military action. That's not good in itself either. Can you speculate about the politics in Israel in the aftermath of the most intense part of the fighting, at least, say, three, four, six months from now? Do you see a way that 
the prime minister can survive politically and this government can continue to function? Look, we can be sure of one thing, Rabbi. Bibi Netanyahu is definitely thinking about that question already, right? He is thinking about can he survive and can he remain in office? That's for sure. That is influencing, I have no doubt, some of his decisions and some of his own thinking. So he'll try to stay in office. He'll try to set up a commission of inquiry to appease the protesters and those calling for his resignation. He'll try all these different tricks. Will they work? I don't know. The war in Lebanon was over on August 14th, 2006. And that day, the reservists, instead of coming home, they went straight to the Jerusalem garden, the Rose Garden outside the prime minister's office. And they set up a tent city. And they said, we're continuing to protest. This is a continuation of our service. We now have to fight to change the government in this country. I have a feeling that that will happen here as well. And the reservists are 350, 360,000 of them. It's an astounding number. Astounding. right? We're a country of only 9 million people. That will have a great impact. And I predict that that will happen. Will that get Netanyahu to step down? I also don't think so. I think what that might do is put pressure on the Likud party, that the Likud people will rise up potentially against him and say to him, Netanyahu, it's over. But can I tell you that for sure? Not at all, because would I, we ever have imagined that this guy would be able to stay on after being indicted and after being on trial and all the other things that have happened. So it's very difficult to, to really predict here. Many of the people who were so devastated in the South on that day, on October 7th, and are now misplaced, They're, what people don't pay attention to over here in the West is that there are, I think, 200,000 Israelis who have been uprooted from their own homes, many of them in the South and many in the North, and many of those are Likud supporters and uh, Netanyahu supporters. Do you think that such a trauma will change their perspective on and their voting habits right now the polling shows you know it's interesting if you look back at like after 9 11 and as america embarked on its war bush's polling was very high right and it, then it started to deteriorate here netanyahu is starting very low which means he could potentially actually go up so if the war goes well if there are results if it seems like israel has achieved the decisive victory it's looking for, whether it's in Gaza or also in Lebanon, maybe that could actually change the public opinion about him. I'm sure that that's part of his thinking. But this tragedy that these people face with, those people who have been uprooted from their homes, how do they go back? How do they go back home with communities completely destroyed? Where do they live? We're not even thinking about this aspect of I have friends who live there. They're now in hotels in different cities or by family. Where do they go? Where do their kids go to school? What about their jobs? Even when the war's over, will there be security? Will there not be security? Who's going to rebuild the infrastructure? Israel's in this for a long period ahead still. Let me ask you one more question. You're one of Israel's greatest explainers to international media. You appear frequently on Western media outlets. It's a uniquely challenging effort on your part, and it's uniquely frustrating for the Jewish community in particular to observe the coverage of the BBC or CNN or MSNBC, all of which you've appeared on. First of all, what's your experience in interacting with these media outlets? I try to do what I can, and I know media, and I guess I know how to articulate, and, and if this is how I can help the country, 
it's my privilege and, and honor. But what I can say is that my, in general, my experience is fine, right? In other words, do these people love us? No. Do they hate us though? Also no. Are they coming from a bias? 100%. What is the bias? Their hearts, they, they, they lean very strongly to the Palestinian narrative, right? We saw this play out. A perfect illustration was what happened with that hospital blast. Right away, everybody takes what the Hamas health ministry in Gaza says, and then they report it as if it's fact. But then when Israel says something, everyone's questioning, well, Israel, you don't always tell the truth. We don't know. So in other words, a terrorist organization that kills babies, you're going to believe them. You're not going to believe the IDF. Don't believe the IDF. That's fine. But how can you believe these guys? So I recognize that. And can we change it? I don't know. But can you in an interview and in an engagement with somebody who's asking you questions, can you put a pin in that balloon and try to create a different perspective that you can definitely do. There are people who have different approaches to this, right? People who go on and just want to fight, <laughs> just want to fight and yell and scream. That's not my approach. I believe that you can actually present an argument and explain and give facts and push back on things. I mean, I had one interview where somebody said to me, the images in Gaza and this and, and what about the civilians of Gaza and their suffering? And my, my answer to her was, and what about the civilians in Israel? The, the, the 1,200 at the time who have been murdered and butchered. She didn't have anything to say. You know, she was just caught right away with all she could talk about were the civilians in Gaza. So, you know, you sometimes you can call them out that way. And then they're at a loss of words. So the images have changed and the story has changed. And the narrative now is about the suffering of Gaza and less about the suffering in Israel. But again, I believe that if you come with facts, determination, and you can explain it well, you can help change the way people perceive and how they understand what's happening here. Are you following what's happening on Western campuses and in the streets of uh, London and New York and in the elite universities? Look... I see what's happening. I spent a year at Harvard doing a mid-career fellowship, and I saw those letters that were out by those organizations and the failure by the president of Harvard to speak clearly on this issue. Other colleges, what's happening on the streets of London, 100,000 people out there chanting jihad. We're facing a global threat. Here, it's rockets and attempts to murder us. There, it's anti-Semitism. And it's an attempt to undermine our resilience as a people and our religious identity. And it could turn also into physical harm to Jewish communities around the world. This is a battle that we face as a Jewish people. The most important thing that I think we need to know, and Rabbi Hirsch, you know this, is that we are one people. We are one people, whether we're in Israel, whether we're in the US, we're in London, we're in South Africa, we're in Russia, Ukraine, wherever we are, we are one people. And this was an attack on the Jewish people. They killed us, not because we're in Israel, because we are Jews in Israel. That's what this was about. And I think that is a message that every Jew needs to remember, that this was an attack on them. They might not be here, but it was an attack on them as a people who are all together one. Yaakov Katz, I want to thank you for all that you have done and are doing on behalf of Israel and the Jewish people. We wish for you and your family and all of our people's safety and eventual tranquility and well-being. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you very much. 
I'm touched by Yaakov's final message to us, that we are one people wherever we happen to live, and that the Hamas onslaught was an attack on the Jewish people. Yaakov emphasized that they kill Israelis not because they live in Israel, but because they are Jewish and live in Israel. I agree with this completely, not only regarding the grotesque savagery of October 7th, but with respect to all those enemies of Israel who have never accepted the presence of a Jewish state in the Middle East and proclaim their intention to kill Jews wherever they live. Jews are a people. We are not simply a religion. We are a civilization. This is the core idea, the essence of who we are, and the starting point for everything else. The principal framework of Judaism is not the individual Jew or the local synagogue. The center of Judaism is the Jewish people. We belong to something larger than ourselves. We are connected in countless ways to something miraculous, the only Western civilization to have survived ancient days. My rabbinate is devoted to arousing in American Jews a sense of belonging, a pride, a spiritual awakening, a commitment to continue what 3,000 years have produced, to urge American Jews not to allow three millennia of Jewish civilization to slip away in their families. Think of the enormity of that loss, the chain of transmission sustained since the days of Moses, through good times and many bad times, that spark of Judaism that history's tyrants sought to snuff out, that Jewish essence that was implanted in us from the moment of our birth, not because we had any say in it, but that those who preceded us fought like lions to ensure that we would be born with that Jewish essence, that thousands of years of Jewish transmission would abruptly end in our family because the parents of 21st century Jewish children were uninterested in passing it on to their children, thus depriving these children of their heritage, the knowledge of who they are. Just think of the enormity of that loss. They failed to fill their children with enough Jewish identity to even know why Judaism is important. Is it any wonder, then, that so many of these children grow up with little understanding and even less commitment to the generational transmission of Judaism that granted them their Jewish standing? I am a Zionist because I believe in the centrality of Jewish peoplehood. I believe in the right of the Jewish people to self-determination in Zion, the ancient homeland of our people. I am willing to share part of that land, but not to surrender all of it to those refusing to believe in coexistence. It is not only that Israel is a place of refuge for millions of persecuted Jews who now live with dignity and are thriving. If it was only that, Dayenu, that would have been enough for me. If all that Israel did was to provide a home for what is now the majority of the world's Jews, Dayenu, that too would have been enough. But Israel is much more. Israel is the most eloquent expression of Jewish peoplehood in our days. It is one of the great wonders of the world, the recreation and restoration of the national home and the national spirit of the Jewish people. Israel testifies to the Jewish people's indomitable will to survive. If all we have is an America-centered understanding of Judaism, disregarding the totality of the Jewish experience, with Israel at its very heart, we will then lead diminished Jewish lives that will not sustain us over time. Israel is where we discover that Judaism is not only Shabbat and festivals and rituals, it is not only life cycles and Torah study, but Judaism is all in, a history, a destiny. Judaism is the collective experiences of the Jewish people exercising collective Jewish influence, responsibility, and agency. We cannot fully understand the contemporary Jewish experience or live complete Jewish lives without Israel being part of our Jewish identity. And one final point, Zionism is a liberal cause. The liberation and self-determination of an ancient and persecuted people 
that is entitled to life and dignity like all the other peoples of the earth. Zionism was created by liberals. Theodor Herzl was a secular Jew, deeply learned in Western philosophy, who just wanted to be left alone. And only after determining that Europe would never leave the Jewish people alone, no matter how much Kant they studied, only then did he come up with a history-shattering idea of rebuilding the Jewish state after two millennia of exile. Israel should be receiving the support of liberals, not their scorn. Israel is a liberal democracy that upholds progressive humanitarian values, not perfectly, but earnestly and admirably, given its security challenges that most countries cannot even imagine. While, of course, it is legitimate and even desirable to criticize Israel's missteps and mistakes, those so-called liberal anti-Zionists who deny the Jewish people alone the right to self-determination, you know, the Palestine will be free from the river to the sea crowd, they are not liberal, they are illiberal. They corrupt liberal values and are an embarrassment to those of us who are, in fact, liberal. For all of you who may be filled with anxiety about the future, know that while individual Jews assimilate and individual Jews are murdered by killers, the Jewish people is indestructible. We have seen it all, survived it all, and aren't going anywhere. Until next time, this is In These Times.